Okay, there are two readings this evening from Ephesians. Um, the first is um, from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, and that is um, verses 11 to 23. And then we move to chapter 3 um, for um, verses 14 to 21. So starting with chapter 1, verse 11. Hold this. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then to chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is, it, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Um, oh, responsive. Uh, it's a real treat to be back with you for me anyway, <laughs> um, again for the second week in a row. Uh, last week we, um, we looked at Job's prayers, we're still in a sermon series on people at prayer uh, and tonight it's the turn of Paul 
Um, and in case that sort of alarms you and fills you with a little bit of dread, as Paul did write most of the New Testament, fear not. Uh, we are going to be focusing specifically on how and what Paul prays for other people. How and what Paul prays for other people. Uh, so I think it would be wise to pray as we start. Would you join me? Father, thank you that your word contains rich truths for us. If there are any barriers in our life now, any walls that we've put up that might block you from speaking to us, would you just come and really gently dismantle them now? Would you help us to open our hearts and our minds to hear you and to make changes as we need to do? We pray that all of this would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I wonder, have you ever met someone maybe in a small group, maybe um, after church one Sunday service, and you've got chatting to them and they've told you a little bit about what they've been going through, uh, and at the end of the conversation you've said something like, well, really nice to meet you, and you know what, I'm going to be praying for you, I'm be praying for you. Uh, and the moment that you've left them, you completely forget about them until the next time you see them, when suddenly you're plagued by guilt because you actually did not in any way pray for them. So you offer a few swift, backdated prayers because God's outside of time and that's totally fine. Um, and that's just how you deal with that sort of complicated issue of praying for people. Or is that just me? Um, recently, I was at a family barbecue, and I got chatting to my cousin who's just sat her GCSEs. And I asked her if she was going to go back to school and stay on for year 12, and what A-levels was she was going to do. And she said that she actually wasn't going to do A-levels. She was going to do BTECs. I confess that I didn't really know what a BTEC was. And she explained to me that uh, they're pretty similar to A-levels, except it's a lot more coursework involved. So no exams, just a lot of coursework. And I said, to be honest, I think give me an exam any day over coursework. All I remember of coursework is slaving over this wretched piece of work, handing it in, having it marked, only to have it handed back, to have to slave all over it again, to hand it back in, this kind of ridiculously unending cycle of coursework. Uh, and I remember hating this. And I suddenly was thinking about this, and I realized that this is one of the reasons why I find praying for other people quite so difficult. It requires a long-term commitment. I am very, very good at immediate crisis prayers. Send me a text, say you're in trouble, and I am there. I will pray for you. Uh, I'm particularly good, she says, at prayer ministry. But ongoing, sustained prayer for someone that's really difficult. Uh, it's hard work, partly because I'm inherently selfish. Um, it's so much easier to pray for myself and what I need. Uh, partly because with long-term prayer, it can be hard to know what to pray, particularly if the stuff that you're praying doesn't seem to be doing much. Do I keep praying the same things? And partly because there are just so many other people that we could be praying for. And the task seems overwhelming, and so I sort of give up before I've even begun. As you read Paul's letters, you get the impression that he spent a lot of time praying. And as he founded most of the early churches, uh, Paul had a lot of people to pray for. Uh, but he doesn't seem to have been overwhelmed or bored by his task. Instead, his prayers seem to sort of throb with an energy and a joy and a passion. So today, we're going to look at how Paul prayed for people. 
and we're not going to study an actual prayer of Paul's, interestingly. We're going to study what he says that he has been praying for other people. And we're going to see that Paul gives us some really solid advice on how to pray for others. We're going to learn that we need to use scripture as our springboard to pray. We're going to see that we need to put on the right kind of metaphorical glasses. We need to begin with thanksgiving. And then we're going to seek God's agenda when we pray. So that's where we're going tonight. So the first thing that Paul suggests we need to do when we pray for other people is to use scripture as a springboard. My friend Ali uh, is American and uh, she recently came back from a business trip to America and there was a gap in childcare on her return date. So she asked if I would take her son for the morning. And the plan was that I would take him to a group we attend called Tumble Tots. I lead a thrilling life. And, uh, and then after Tumble Tots, I would take him back and I would drop him off at her house where she would have returned back from America. So we agreed to this, we made the plan. And at the end of this conversation, she said this. Now, I'll probably be fast asleep when you drop him off because I'll have quite bad jet lag. So if you ring the bell and I don't answer, just keep ringing and eventually I'll wake up. So sure enough, when I rang the bell, uh, no one answered the door. So I knocked quite hard, nothing. So I rang the bell, you know that kind of sustained, really annoying ringing. I just put my finger on it and just held it there. In any other situation, I, and I suspect most of us, would consider this behavior incredibly rude. I'm the kind of person, if I have to knock on someone's door, that would tap tentatively three times, wait for one second, and then if no one answers, I will scurry away because I think, well, they, cannot want, they don't want to be disturbed. So why was I so bold slash rude this time around? Well, I was because Ali had given me both instructions and the authority to behave like this. I knew, firstly, that she was definitely in the house. And secondly, I knew, because she told me, that she would be delighted to see me and her son when she eventually opened the door. I wasn't frightened and I wasn't apprehensive about her reaction because I already knew what it would be. And as you read Paul's prayers for other people, we can see that they are powerful and authoritative. Why is that? I think it's in part because Paul's mind was saturated with the Hebrew scriptures, what we would now call the Old Testament. You see, Paul was a leading Pharisee of his time. That meant that he would have memorized huge passages of the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul, as he mulled on God's promises and God's character and God's past behavior to his people, these gave Paul both the inspiration on what to pray and the authority to do so. So when we read verses 11 to 14 in Ephesians chapter 1, you might like to open your Bibles, we can see the scriptural truths that gave Paul his springboard, his motivation, his authority to pray for the Ephesian Christians. I'm just going to list them for you. Paul remembered that God had chosen them. Paul remembered that God had a purpose for these Christians. Paul remembered that God had a plan that they should live for the praise of his glory and that they had been given the Holy Spirit as both proof of God's commitment to them and a guarantee that his plans will be carried out in the future. And it is these truths that Paul had been mulling on that gave him the springboard to pray. So then he says in verse 15, for this reason, 
In other words, when I think about all this, says Paul, when I think about all the things that God has done, all the things that he is doing, and all the things that he will do in the future, I am excited for you. I am not overwhelmed by what you're going through. I am not overwhelmed by the long-term commitment to praying for you. I'm excited. Why? Because by praying for you, I'm just joining in with what God's already doing. God's already doing this stuff. I just get to join him in praying for you. We, like Paul, need to use Scripture as our springboard to pray for our authority and inspiration on how to pray and what to pray. So that's the first thing. We need to use Scripture as our springboard to pray. The second thing we need to do is we need to start with thanksgiving. We need to start with thanksgiving. Having received the authority and the inspiration to pray, we need to change how we think about the person we're praying for. Have a look with me at verse 16. Paul says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I have not stopped giving thanks for you. How does Paul begin his prayers? By thanking God for the people for whom he is praying. Why start here? Why start with thanksgiving? Well, firstly, because the person for whom we pray, the people for whom we pray, have been specifically created by God. And God deserves to be praised for his thanksgiving. So when we say thank you for them, we praise God. We say thank you for this person. Thank you for these people. Secondly, when we thank God for someone, our perspective on them changes. Some people are really easy to pray for. People we like, friends, people we love, those who are doing well in their Christian life. That's a good one. But other people are more difficult the teenager who is driving us crazy with their mood swings and erratic behavior. The elderly parent who is becoming more and more demanding. The irritating person in our home group. Our friend who we love and have been praying for for years, but still haven't become a Christian. They are difficult people to pray for. When we thank God for these people, we are reminded how God sees them rather than how we see them. We are given his eternal perspective on them. So, for example, if you look at verse 18, Paul is reminded that each and every Christian, and he is praying for Christians here, is part of God's inheritance. You and I, and yes, even that incredibly difficult person that we're praying for, are not just treasured by God, but they are in and of itself part of God's inheritance, part of God's treasure. And that gives the people for whom we pray for enormous standing and worth and value. They may be irritating, but they are God's treasure. And that changes us. That changes us. John White uh, writes in a book um, he wrote on people in prayer, and he suggests we should pray something like this. Pray specifics. Thank God that he reached down from heaven to save the one for whom you pray. Thank him for any evidence, past or present, of his work. Thank him for his unchanging purposes towards the person for whom you pray. When we thank God for people, we get given new eyes to see them as God does. So we've considered our motivation and our authority for prayer, the springboard of scripture, and we begin to look at how we pray. We start by thanking God for the person. The third point, says Paul, is that we need to seek God's agenda when we pray. Seek God's agenda. So this is the nitty-gritty. What exactly should we be praying for when we pray for other people? 
what are the things that you ask God for when you pray for other people? What are some of the things? Uh, health, maybe? Protection? Happiness? I realized as I was mulling on this, a phrase I often use, a kind of generic phrase is, Lord, please bless them. It sounds nicely holy. Please bless them. I think what it means or what I take it to mean when I pray it is make things go well for them. Give them a smooth path in life. And none of these things are bad in and of themselves. What's interesting is that none of these things Paul prays. Paul doesn't pray any of those things for the Ephesian Christians. Have a look with me. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19, and we're going to look at some of the specific things that Paul prays. I'm going to read it from a different translation, because I think sometimes we get a little bit accustomed to hearing the NIV. So I'm going to read it from the message. And as I read it, I want you to think, when was the last time I prayed like this for someone else? Okay? So this is what Paul says. I ask, ask the God of our master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing him personally, your eyes focused and clear so that you can see exactly what he's calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life he has for his followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust him. Endless energy, boundless strength. Paul then goes on to pray in chapter 3. And he says, and I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. You ever prayed a prayer like that for someone? I confess I haven't. It's a little far away from Lord bless them. Now, before we look at what some of these things might mean, some of you might be thinking, well, that's all very well and good, Becca. Um, but Paul's prayers, <clears throat> they're, not very generic, uh, they're not very specific, are they? Uh, my son is facing exams. My sister is single and would love to meet someone. My dad has just been diagnosed with cancer. Surely I should pray for these very specific things rather than that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. So what's going on? Was Paul just being sort of deliberately vague because he was far away in a Roman prison and didn't actually know what the Ephesian Christians were facing? I think in order to answer that question, it's worth us taking a closer look at the city of Ephesus and the church that was based there. So a little history lesson. Ephesus was a city of huge imperial importance. It was on the sort of intersection of several main trade routes. And it was also a spiritual epicenter. Um, Ephesus contained the, the temple um, of the goddess Artemis, uh, known as Diana to the Romans. And this was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So people flocked, spiritual pilgrims flocked from throughout the empire to Ephesus. In fact, um, when Paul visited Ephesus, which you can read about in Acts 18 and 19, there was this kind of thriving commercial enterprise where tradesmen would build figures of the temple to sell to these pilgrims from across the empire. The church in Ephesus itself contained some pretty exciting people. It contained the dream couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, and actually, Paul himself didn't just plant and leave. He spent two years there. Two years of Paul's life were spent in this church. Some of Paul's most extraordinary miracles were done in Ephesus. So, um, for example, people would come to Paul, and they would touch handkerchiefs to Paul. And when they took these handkerchiefs back to wherever they came from in the empire and placed them on their sick friends and on their sick relatives, the power of God was so strong that it would heal those people just from the touch of the handkerchief that had touched Paul. 
In fact, after seeing this power that Paul had in the name of Jesus, some of the local Jews decided to start um, doing their own exorcisms. And they'd say, uh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Interestingly, this worked for a while um, until one evil spirit refused to succumb to this and kind of beat them to a pulp, by the by. So when those living in Ephesus saw this power, saw the power of Jesus Christ in this church, huge numbers of them bought their magic books, their scrolls and their texts, the things that they had used, the incantations they had used to try and control other people. So again, to do with power. And they put them all in the middle of a square and they set fire to them. They burnt them. They had a huge public bonfire. And this in turn meant that the name of Jesus, the way, as the gospel was originally called, spread and grew throughout Asia until everyone living there had heard of it. Ephesus was a happening place. So picture the scene. Paul has been remembering this extraordinary time in Ephesus. He remembers the church. He knows that there are some strong Christians there. But he also knows the kind of pressures the church is facing. Did Jesus have full authority? What about this magnificent temple to Artemis? That's still standing. How do we feel about that? How does that work? That looks pretty powerful. And then they've got the Greeks. You've got lecture halls where people go to lecture. Paul himself did this. And they say that intellectual power is the only way to go. And then, of course, it was all part of the Roman Empire. So you've got political power. Paul, probably writing from a Roman prison, he knows all this. He knows all this. But instead of praying for these very specific things, Paul prays for a much bigger thing. He prays that the Ephesian Christians would recognize and experience God's power and his loves. Paul shifts from the minutiae to the mega. It's not that Paul's in denial about these problems, but simply he recognizes that Christians will always face external pressures. If it's not one worldview, then it's another. So Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know in their deepest being the incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Why? Because Paul knows that when they experience and know this, no matter what external pressures they're facing, whether it's from Artemis or from the Romans or the Greeks, they will stand firm. They will stand firm. And this is key to Paul's strategy in praying for other people. He's like a general, and he surveys the whole scene. And he sees that there's a battle going on over there, and there's a battle going on over there, and there's a battle going on over there. And it's not that these battles don't matter, but Paul knows that if the overall strategy, the bigger picture, is correct, then the smaller battles will be won. Instead of focusing his eyes on the individual problems and looking down here, Paul chooses to look up. Paul chooses to look up and look at God's promises and God's provision. It's not that we shouldn't pray the specifics, but rather we shouldn't neglect to pray the big things, the big promises for people as well. So what does this look like practically? Well, allow me to give you a little example from my own life. Uh, one of the people that I am praying for on a regular basis is my daughter, uh, Imogen. She's three. And in particular, I am praying about her friendship groups at nursery. This is a big deal, okay? Um, even though she's only three, there does seem to be a lot of drama and emotional manipulation going on. Things like, <clears throat> you're not my best friend anymore. Well, I'm not inviting you to my party. 
This happens on a regular basis. Terrifying. Now, one of the things that I can and am praying for is very specific. Please may this child not be quite so emotionally manipulative towards my daughter. <clears throat> but actually, if I were to follow Paul's example, do you know what I'd be praying as well? I would be praying that Imogen would be rooted and established in love, young as she is. If she were able to grasp how much God loves her, then no matter what she's facing now with her three-year-old emotionally me manipulative friends, or when she's 20, she would be secure in her identity. If she had both feet firmly planted on love, then her actions, how she behaved in light of their actions, would come from an awareness of how special she is to God. And that would help her negotiate the perils of social situations now and in the future. When we pray these big prayers, our perspective again shifts. It's just like we learned when we started by thanking God for people. We are reminded of God's bigger purposes and plans. It's not that we ignore the small stuff. It's just that we're not swamped by it. Because that can happen, can't it? Circumstances can just seem overwhelming. And we can be left thinking, God, how on earth do I pray for this person? I can't see a way out for them. This is, this is overwhelming. Our focus needs to shift back to God, says Paul. God, Paul wants us to shift our focus back to God and to his bigger plan and purposes for them. And when we pray like this, we're actually aligning ourselves with what God wants for them, what God wants for the people we're praying for. George MacDonald wrote, intercession, that means praying for other people, intercession is far more the business of aligning myself with God's purposes than asking him to align himself with mine. Intercession is far more the business of aligning myself with God's purposes, what he's doing, what he wants for these people, than asking him to align himself with mine. And that takes the pressure off. God is already doing this in the lives of his people. Paul knew, for example, that Jesus had said to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Paul prayed for these Christians in Ephesus. But as he did so, he knew that far more than him, God was committed to this tiny church. And God would make his kingdom grow. So one of the things I've been trying to do recently um, before praying for other people is to ask God, God, what would you like, you like me to pray for this person? What are you doing in their life that I can pray about? I think they need this, 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 and this. But what do you think? Is this how you want me to pray for them? And sometimes that is completely different from what I've been praying about. Often, as we talked about in the beginning, I want people's comfort. I want them to be happy and healthy and well. And they are good things to want. But you know what? God is often far more interested in our character than our comfort. His will is that we and those for whom we're praying for become more and more like Jesus. And so we can ask, how and what should I be praying for this person? What are you doing in their lives, Lord? As we finish, um, I began by saying that praying for others is hard work. And you still might be thinking, look, Pekka, I want to pray like this. I want to use scripture as a springboard. I want to thank God for these people. And I want to pray God's agenda. But this is hard. This is hard stuff. It's hard to get motivated. 
And it's hard to keep going. And I think even here, Paul offers us some advice. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 20. How is prayer like this possible? What does Paul say? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work with us. In other words, how do we persist in praying for other people? Through the power of God at work within us, God's Holy Spirit. We do not pray alone. We have one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine for those for whom we're praying and also for us as we pray. So we're going to finish now by actually doing some praying. It's revolutionary, I know. So we're going to end by praying for some people. So let's just bow our heads. And uh, we're going to try and do some of the things that Paul suggests here in this passage. So to start, I'd like us to picture someone we've been praying for or some people we've been praying for or someone we'd like to start praying for. So get that person or those people in your mind. And as you picture them, I'm going to read Paul's words. And I want you to imagine that Paul is writing these words about the person which is in your mind. I'm going to substitute the word them for us just to help us think about these promises on, on the behalf of the person or the people we're praying for. And even if your person that you're praying for is not yet a Christian, remember that this is what God wants for them. This is what God wants for them. So I'm going to read Paul's words. And this is a prayer for these people that you're, you're thinking of. How blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had them in his mind. These are the people for whom you're praying. He had them in his mind, had settled on them as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt them into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted them to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son. It's in Christ that they find out who they are and what they are living for. Long before they first heard of Christ and got their hopes up, he had his eye on them. He had his eye on them. He had designs on them for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. Now, I'd just like us to spend some time thanking God for the person or the people that you would like to pray for. Just thank God for them. Finally, just spend some time asking God now, Lord, what is it that you would like me to be praying for that person? You might get an impression, you might get a Bible verse, you might just get a word. And whatever it is, then pray that for that person. Father, thank you that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to your power that is at work within us. And we say to you, be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.